0: Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now.
1: Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life?
0: Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them.
1: Travis, it would be wrong of us to raise a glass and toast this this episode, wouldn't it?
0: Well, it depends what's in the glass.
1: Yes, because this episode's all about alcohol. It is. And the last segment is going to look from a pathological perspective at the interaction of alcohol and our bodies. But before we get there... It's so deeply entwined in mm. so many cultures that there are a few stepping stones we need to go well, over. Yeah. So let's let's begin alcohol and humans. Where do we trace it back to? The
0: the title I enjoy of this is is called the Intemperance of Man. I think that's a uh, that was raised as a, as a very nice title. Uh,
1: Which I changed to the Intemperance of Humankind to make it gender non-specific. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I look, it's a it's an amazing topic, alcohol because. In every aspect of, of history, alcohol is there, and you don't realise how ingrained alcohol is. Even if we look back as far as you know nine thousand BCE, when agriculture and civilization were starting to be documented, mm-hmm. alcohol is there. The earliest evidence we have it is seven thousand BCE in China, because there's a residue that sits in in pottery that you can find that wine was within that. So it's been with us for all of time as, as far as we can tell, documented from that so but it, it is interesting you know the alcohol is is one of those very strange drugs where you can't actually predict, what the outcome of the behavior will be when someone has alcohol. Like you can, they could be loud. They could be obnoxious. They could be nice. They could be reflective. They could be spiritual. Uh, it reminds me of the, the Simpsons uh, where you have, uh, you know, Duff Gardens where you have the seven, uh, the seven Duffs. Uh, it was edgy, remorseful, dizzy, tipsy, surly, sleazy, and queasy. Uh, you know, that's it's sort of, you know, different aspects of, you know, alcohol. Uh, And not only that, one person can have alcohol one week or even the next day and they can experience different, you know, emotions with that.
1: And we also have this uneasy hypocrisy around it as well. Leonard Cohen, a singer-songwriter, one of my favourites, was asked to comment on a really expensive French wine that he was drinking and he said, look, it's a beautiful flavour but let's be honest, there's a lovely buzz and warmth that comes from the alcohol uh, yeah. aspect. Not many of us are happy to admit that, especially me. I drink for the flavour. I don't drink for the alcohol. Over its time, different
0: cultures have had different attitudes towards alcohol and and that's reflective. There was a, a really interesting book by uh, Mark Forsyth who who wrote a, a short history of drunkenness, which goes through their, the different cultures, which I've, I've used in uh some of this he has a really nice quote that I, I really enjoyed in that as well.
1: The sins of a society are revealed in its pieties.
0: So not only the culture itself, but in theology you can see how do gods interact with alcohol? What's their attitude to it? You know, is it the main god or is it the you know, the quirky god who's creating mischief on the side, you can see. Right, back us. Yeah, it's again How did cultures perceive alcohol? So we'll just touch on some of that. But yes, alcohol is ubiquitous. What we're looking at is a lot is revealed about how a society treats it, what they valued about it, or what was important to them about it, and what their gods did with it. If we look at first the ancient Egyptians, beer was a commodity. It was an important commodity. It was, we know, it it was even paid to some of the workers who developed, who, who created the, or built the pyramids they believed that beer saved the world they had in their mythology ra the sun god became angry with mankind because of his duplicitous nature and so all the gods convened and had a meeting and they said let's kill humankind so they sent hathor goddess of the sky who has either a cow's head or a lion's head was also the god of women and fertility of love to go and kill humanity, so which she did. But the gods then eventually started feeling sorry for humanity. But they couldn't stop Hathor because she was in such a bloodlust. So what did they do? They then poured red beer all over the fields, which Hathor then drank and got drunk and passed out. Wow. Therefore, humanity was saved. Thanks to the gods, who then sent Hathor to kill them anyway, but then beer saved them. They then had a f- annual festival of drunkenness.
1: Any excuse.
0: <laughs> it was a celebration. So you would get these people who were well dressed. They were, you know, going to uh, the the temple of Hathor, and you would have a ceremony where Hathor comes from down the aisle and is gifted red tinted beer uh, that they would drink, and then. They would all then, this would start at dusk, then they would have what can only be described as a drunken orgy of what they called walking through the marshes, which is a euphemism.
1: (laughs) Euphemism? Have you been drinking?
0: (laughs) No, I just Um, tongue-tied. Euphemism. Oh, okay, right.
1: (laughs) Travelling the marshes. Yes. Which is a euphemism.
0: (laughs) For sex. So they were traveling the marshes, they were drinking beer, they were drinking to get drunk and have this massive orgy. And then it seems that vomiting was part of the ceremony because they would put emetic herbs in the beer that they were drinking. So this was quite a festival that then everyone would eventually either pass out or fall asleep. And then at the crack of dawn, they would drum these big drums to wake everyone up with the statue of hathor the sun hitting the light and they would all wake in a drunken potentially hungover environment to see the god hathor over them not only that they also have hieroglyphics of their drunken rampages in their tombs. They were celebrating not just drinking, but drunkenness.
1: Which is interesting because uh, after we've recorded this as part of the Adelaide Film Festival, one of the films this year is called Another Round, which is based on the belief that we are better when we are a little bit drunk in life because we have less inhibitions, etc. Well, the Greek would agree with you. So... They, the ancient Greece
0: wrote, um, well, effectively down to every other culture. They drank diluted wine, and they were the most cultured and sophisticated. Everyone else who didn't do that were either barbarians or uncultured. Uh, they had their god, Dionysus, uh, who was the, the god of wine and winemaking and, and fertility. And uh, I'm not sure why alcohol and fertility seem to go together, but uh, they have ritual madness and, and religious ecstasy. But Dionysus, he wasn't the main god, but he didn't like non-drinkers. And if he encountered non-drinkers, he would kill them. It was sort of like, a, oh, this is a, you know, their mythology. Dionysus was not nice to non-drinkers. Plato believed the ideal man maintained their self-control while drunk. But this was meant to display virtue. So drunkenness reveals true character. And true character is only revealed through drunkenness. Mm. So they would have symposiums. This was a conference or a meeting to discuss a particular subject. They would have, have it in a private house with about 12 or 15 men. They would have a meal and the room was arranged in, with seats and couches. Young men had to sit, sit up, whereas old men could lie down. And then what they had was the leader. His name was, he was a symposiarch. Now, it was always a man. I do use he because women were not permitted. He would choose the wine that they would be drinking for the night. They would be brought out in a vat. It would be mixed with water and shared out. They would have a libation, a dedication, which would be spilling some of it to the gods and fallen heroes and Zeus. And then everyone would drink. And everyone had to drink Their whole bowl before anyone else got a refill. And the symposiarch, their job was to choose a topic that everyone was going to speak about. They would speak in turn as a monologue. And then it would go to the next person. And so Plato ended up choosing for his symposia. He had, you would talk on the topic of love. Uh, Xenophon, his topic was, what are you most proud of? So that was their attitude. Now, it would descend ultimately into chaos and drunkenness. Ah. But it was, you know, they would bring out vats and everyone would drink again and then... So it was a ritual.
1: I'd actually like to put this to the test. I'd like to invite you over for dinner, so we could actually follow these rules. <laughs>
0: well, How it cool. sounds—it sounds again. It seems quite odd, but you would have it as a, you know, talk about your, you know, orator or whatever, love or joy or happiness or you know, virtues. It, it sounds quite interesting, but again, I think it would descend eventually into. Yeah,
1: it, the first it, part would yeah. be magnificent. <laughs>
0: again that was their attitude so they believed that your true character would come through in drunkenness the romans however they had a different perspective on it now they still worshiped dionysus so there was still that theme carried across but they had a convivium they had a banquet Uh, but rome is always about power there's two kinds of people in rome people who have power and people who want power and these high society, the rich types, they would organise this convivium. They would invite guests. Now, you could invite important people, but you would often get non-important people or people you didn't care about. But when they got there, people were arranged in their order of importance in the room. So if you were sitting one side, you were the important people. You got the best food, the best wine. You were served by the most attractive slaves. If you were unimportant... And sometimes that might have been the point. You had inferior food. You had poor wine. You had the ugly slaves. And the slaves were crawling around. That was their job. They, they couldn't walk around. They were crawling. And in Rome, the oldest wine was the best. Doesn't matter about the taste, but the oldest grape was the most important. But that was the point. It was about power. It was providing this to people on the hierarchical structure of Rome. So if someone was important, they were honoured. Sometimes you might invite someone to show them they weren't important, but that was Rome. And then we've got Vikings and Scandinavian country, the top god. All these other ones have been lesser gods. The Vikings, Odin, he only drank wine. Now, wine in Scandinavian countries was rare. It was, but he didn't eat. He only drank wine. So what happens to a culture whose top god only drinks wine? Well, it's the important part. So they would celebrate alcohol. Lords would set up these mead halls. And their job as a lord was to have warriors who would provide them with drink. So they would come to the mead hall to drink. If you went to someone's mead hall, then you were honour-bound to protect them if it was needed. So it worked in that relationship. Women in this society were only seen as drinks servants or peace weavers, but that's because they were giving warriors drinks that ultimately would lean to a drunken mead hall. They would then have drinking contests, and they had boastful announcements. But if you made an announcement, even while drunk, you were honour-bound to follow through with it. Oh, boy. And people would fall asleep. They wouldn't leave the mead hall. They fell asleep there, or pass out, whichever. So you just get a snapshot what how is culture used in that area so if we look at theology how is alcohol treated you know we'll use the the three uh, you know Christianity Qan and, and Judaism so in the Bible we have over 200 references in the Old Testament to
1: alcohol and most of them are all are neutral uh, there are warnings but it's not forbidden from the Bible's perspective I grew up my dad, it's an Anglican priest and I would selectively quote from the Bible and I still do to this day if I feel just a little bit off I remember St. Paul wrote a, a little letter saying uh, give him some red wine just to settle his stomach or something of like that and that is my gospel <laughs> quote. <laughs> but, but that's that's the
0: thing it is, it's not clear cut and if you go to the Old Testament again, they're neutral You you look at Noah he got passed out drunk and was found naked by his youngest son he yes. told his other son who then covered him, but then the youngest son got in trouble for noticing him. So,
1: yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah. I think Noah had a bit of a bad run with being drunk. <laughs>
0: ah. The lesson from the story is it's don't notice your dad when he's passed out na- naked, drunk on the ground. I think, but
1: that's, right, that's what I teach my kids. <laughs>
0: And then you've got Lot, who escaped Sodom with, uh, well, his wife turned to a pillar of salt. But the two daughters went off into the hills and they were isolated. And the two daughters were worried that humankind was going to run out. They ended up getting Lot drunk, uh, had a plan to get drunk and then get pregnant. Yes. So they got him drunk one night and first Mm -hmm. uh, daughter got pregnant. And then the next night, the second daughter got pregnant. So it's such a an unusual kind of, when you read it, going on. Mm -hmm. When you look at the New Testament, this then starts to get a little bit murkier with regards to the attitude towards
1: alcohol. And we even have a quote from Jesus. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard. Does that mean that Jesus drank or drank a lot? Or is he defending...
0: Something coming
1: back to pointing out hypocrisy. I think that's what, that, that, what that's what that is. But again, the
0: perceptions these days is that alcohol and drunkenness is is ungodly, and so that's a interesting sort. But when you read that, it's just like well, clearly Jesus is saying drunk wine. So even at the Last Supper, we talk about where Jesus breaks the bread and says, drink this wine in remembrance of me. That's alcohol. The challenging area is is Jesus' miracle at Cana, where six stone... Jars of water, estimated to be 20 to 30 gallons each. So about 120 to 180 gallons, which is, you know, 500 to 700 litres of wine is miraculously
1: produced. That's my favourite book from the Gospel, though. <laughs> the, the Gospel According to Dan Murphy. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and that's the thing. You, and again, that drinking in remembrance of me. You then have St. Paul, who's telling early Christians, drink. But you don't get drunk to celebrate communion. But you can understand early Christians, is that this is the environment you celebrate Jesus, you celebrate the life, and by drinking more, you're remembering more. <laughs> uh, you know, you can understand where that's coming from, but St. Paul saying, no, pull it back a bit. That takes us to the the Quran. So the rules for Islam have certainly gotten stricter over time. The, the Quran actually states that one should not pray while drunk, or one should avoid drinking and gambling as there is more harm than good in it. The tradition is that there was a story of some of Muhammad's followers that got into a fight due to drinking. And this was what was written.
1: O ye who believe, strong drink and games of chance and idols and divining arrows are only an infamy of Satan's handiwork. Leave it aside in order that ye may succeed.
0: This is interpreted as drinking is the handiwork of the devil. There are a collection of sayings from the prophet of Muhammad called the the Hadith. And this is where the punishment for drinking is 80 lashes. Islam, again, because of this, went down to uh, societies of prohibition. Uh, so long-standing, there is no alcohol. That's, there's no interpretation when someone gets 80 lashes. It's, it's something wrong. Uh, now, there is varying levels of success as to whether societies were able to keep alcohol out or not, uh, but that's for each of the societies. And then, lastly, we got Judaism. And again, much like the Bible, uh, it has a mixed view of alcohol uh, because parts of the Jewish tradition are celebrations of Jewish holidays and, and blessings at weddings and circumcisions. You, you have Passover with four cups of wine. But the Talmud uh, has an opinion that the tree of knowledge for Adam and Eve was actually a grapevine. So the fruit was not an apple, it was a grape. And this caused the original sin. So it has a Alcohol is good and bad, um, and must be treated with caution. So, you know, they do have rules, certainly similar with regards to, you know, it's forbidden to pray while drunk, and priests can't uh, serve in a temple if they are drunk. Again, mixed as to the attitude towards alcohol and and where it stands in the so- in the society or in the theology. <laughs>
1: Under the table, I digger, I digger, was a boozy beggar who could think you under the table. David Hume could outconsume Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and Wittgenstein was a beery swine who was just a slosh to Schlegel. There's nothing, nothing. nature couldn't teach about the raising of the ribs. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. John Stewart billed on his own free will, On half of our shammy was particularly ill. Later this day, he could sing it away. Have a and whiskey, every day, Aristotle, Aristotle was a bagger for the bottle, onto a spond of his dram. And Rene Descartes was a drunken, but I drink, therefore I am. Yes, Socrates himself is particularly missed.
2: A lovely little thinker, but a bagger when he's pissed. <laughs> So we'll
1: continue our episode about alcohol. Now we've had our aperitif and now it's time for the next round. Uh, where are we going now, So Travis? we'll
0: have a, just a look at where we are from our own society, Australia. I mean, how would you describe Australian drinking culture? Uh,
1: I think I would say it's heavily entrenched. It is almost unheard of for Australians to gather without some sort of beer or wine or, or something to lubricate the social lubricator.
0: So it's, it's, it's pretty much of any occasion and it's almost, well, from what I can work out, is it's good or bad?
1: I am a big believer in drinking mindfully, like choosing what you drink with care because you want to enjoy something of pedigree, of quality, but often it's just guzzled. And so it's like it's automatic to have that drink in your hand without being overly mindful of what it is that's being tipped down the gullet which makes me sound a bit snobbish i, I like it more to try to be a bit discerning about it well
0: look it is interesting because the, the other thing about drinking that that you know when you start looking at this is is there a level of hierarchy in the alcohol that you drink you know uh, you know if you drink the the craft beer or the imported beer is that better than or worse than a homegrown or the boutique you know and there is actually when you get into it there is a whole stratosphere of What's important and what's not
1: yeah and i think this is we keep mentioning hypocrisy it's intertwined with this whole topic because part of that hierarchy is this lovely ability humans have of self-justification where we do something and our brain makes up the reason why it was justified and if you're drinking like i was just saying i i drink for the flavor i drink for i try to be mindful but how much is that me just covering my tracks psychologically? But
0: here's, here's the thing. We're not, we're not alone in this. If we, if we look at some of the statistics, so the, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, uh, we do have a little bit uh, – I, look, I would say it's a Western thing as opposed to just Australian, but it is one in seven people uh, in Australia have over, had over 11 standard drinks at once in the last past year. So that's a reasonable amount to, to be ingesting. One in six people have levels that would be considered at-risk alcohol-related disease or injury. Unfortunately, we've got a statistic of one in five people have reported being a victim of alcohol-related incident, incident in 2019. And then we have one in four people have consumed alcohol at levels uh, that puts them at risk Uh, for alcohol-related disease on a single occasion, at least monthly. From that perspective, it's very prevalent in our society. 36% of all drug treatments
1: are alcohol-related. 36%? Yeah, so of all drug treatments.
0: The statistics are that about 5 to 10% of Western populations are classified as, as chronic alcoholism. Around about 1.25 to 2.5 million of Australians will fit into that classification of having chronic alcoholism. That's estimated at about 10 to 15 million in the U.S. And there was even a, a U.S. study which uh, did a study of the patients walking into the emergency department. Uh, just on general, 40% of them had positive blood alcohol concentrations. About a third of these patients had 0.08 which is their uh, cutoff for driving limits for them. So if you look at the average uh, patient in uh, or the patient cohort in a GP clinic, about 20% of them will have an
1: alcohol use disorder. That number of standard drinks sneaks up on you, doesn't it?
0: It does. It does. So uh, when, when you look at it, you sit there and just go, for males, they have a lifetime risk of 10 to 15%. Of, alcoholism. of Of alcohol uh, use disorder or alcoholism. Um, and women have a little bit less, so they have a lifetime risk of 5 to 8%. So, And the interesting thing is about 60% of the risk of alcohol use uh, and disorder is related to genes. Oh. So children of parents who are considered alcoholic have a four times increase of being alcoholic themselves.
1: See, that's well, I was going to say sobering, uh, unintentionally, because in my family, uh, my ears just pricked up as you were saying that. My paternal grandfather uh, was alcoholic. Uh, I got a a bit of a story from my dad about him, and he thinks it was because he had a very strict upbringing where he was considered by his parents not to be worthwhile. And so at some point you can see um, it's a coping mechanism to hide... Uh, behind that and, and as a youngster growing up I had no idea Grandpa uh, was suffering from that disease because he was sometimes sleeping in the afternoon and said, oh grandpa's having a nap now uh, but it invaded his whole life and uh, my dad says one thing was interesting towards the end of his life when he'd um, uh, had a um, uh, triple bypass and then was off alcohol it was the first time in his life that he was with my father and put his arm around him and said, I love you. And so unlike those ancient cultures saying when you've got alcohol, your true character comes through, here it was the abstinence that actually allowed that flourishing of a relationship to take place. My uh,
0: maternal grandfather, um, now I don't know if he was in this category or, or not at all, but my memory is him always having a beer in one hand you know, just sitting in front of the TV watching, you know, love watching the races, but I always remember him having a beer. Now, that might be my perception. He may not have had a beer, but I just remember him always having a can. Uh, you know, it's, it is amazing. Uh, you know, when you look at the history, you find out that, uh, you know, people talk about drinking water. Well, you couldn't drink water, you had to drink wine. Well, that's if people could afford it. But remember when it came in mass produce, if you were poor, if you were, you know, destitute – if you could get some wine to drink away your worries and pass out kind of, you can understand them doing that. Um, it It is interesting to see, again, just the cultural element that alcohol has played. I mean, when we look at the natural history of drinking, the average first drink of a person is at 15 years of age. So we have our limit at 18 years. In the US, it's 21 years. So it'd be interesting to see if that makes any actual practical difference, di- yeah, practical yes. difference or not. But uh, what we find is that early onset problem drinking can actually be seen in those first few years because if they're not, if they're binge drinking a lot, or if they're doing even problem drink at that point, that's uh, they fit into a higher risk category of problems are, uh, in the future.
1: In your research, have you noticed whether cultures where, uh, like France, where table wine being drunk from a young age is par for the course lessens the likelihood of that binge drinking versus cultures where that's taboo and seen as something a bit special and therefore it captures the imagination of the teenage mind as something to push boundaries with
0: well so the, the interesting part is they talk about wet and dry cultures uh and the wet cultures it's not that dry doesn't have alcohol but the wet cultures are ones that have a little bit of here and there alcohol it doesn't matter if it's in a you know bit of the day it's just seen it's ubiquitous and it's okay my understanding is they have less their problems than the dry cultures where you don't drink at all until it's you know the evening or afternoon but when you drink you drink hard and so that will be more the sort of the binge culture uh i don't know the statistics though behind which is you know do they both have the levels that would be actually a really good study so if someone shoots out it would be quite interesting to see do they have as much chronic alcoholism in wet and versus dry culture, so so I'll try and drink more regularly. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> we'll t- say, yeah, go that way. We'll see. It's it's it is interesting, but again, that's a cultural part. They talk about Southern Mediterranean, Northern Mediterranean. You know, uh, and again, you would probably classify us then as a dry culture, so you don't really drink during the week, but at the weekend, you'll you know, so or some people will hit it quite hard. Uh, but I don't. I don't have any statistics on uh, which is, which is better or worse. Uh, I, honestly, I would probably suspect the um, the wet culture would probably be a little bit more. It's not such a an occasion. It's not something you know. It seems to be more moderation. When we look at that, the general population. So when people are drinking, usually by about mid twenties, most people will taper off their drinking a little bit. But the people who are possibly going to have issues they don't they actually increase so mid to late 20s they're increasing their alcohol intake and what we know is that 25 percent of all cases of alcohol misuse will lead to chronic dependence we can identify some of the risk factors for this um, and people are classified as alcoholic continue to drink they have a reduced lifespan of 10 years they have, and this is due to heart disease, cancer, accidents, and, and suicide. So when we look at, you know, it, it is interesting though, so people who would be classified as, as alcoholic, 20% of them are able to, fo- to get into remission without any help. So they're able to stop the drinking. That goes up to 55 to 60% with treatment and assistance support. So it's remarkable to organisations such as AA. The really interesting thing about this, and you can do a search, um, if you search out, because alcohol and, and the amount we drink is so ubiquitous, you would sit there and go, well, who, you know, who must have been you know, dropped dead drunk in the history books? There's precious few when you do a Google search. There's here and there. So, you know, we mentioned Alex, Alexander the Great. He's notorious for having a, you know, lots of drink, but that's just from the history books. You know, we look at the founding, fa- the founding fathers of the U.S. So, you know, George Washington, Tom Jeff- Jefferson, uh, John Adams, even Benjamin Franklin wrote a dictionary with uh, greater than 200 euphemisms for getting drunk. You know, I mean, imagine a politician day doing a, their own dictionary uh, <laughs> about, you know, get, you know, different sayings on, you know, drunk. Uh, we have Lord Byron. He has a quote.
1: Man, being responsible must get drunk. The best of life is but intoxication.
0: And then you have Karl Marx, who's a philosopher. You know, contributed with the theory of communism. Uh, he was a he had significant drinking when he was a uni student in the 1800s. Even went to jail for a day for disturbing the peace, which was quite remarkable in the 1800s. Uh, his father called his this drunken, whatever you would call it, he said it was wild rampaging. He's uh, even reportedly had a 10-day binging alcohol episode. Um, and there's even a, a quote from a friend of his of, of some of the antics they got up to.
1: Now, we had enough of our beer trip for the time being, and in order to cool our heated blood, we started on a double-quick march until Edgar Bauer stumbled over some paving stones. Hurrah! An idea, and in memory of mad student pranks, he picked up a stone and clash, clatter, a gas lantern went flying into splinters. <laughs> Nonsense is contagious. Marks and I did not stay behind and we broke four or five street lamps. It was oh, perhaps two o'clock in the morning and the streets were deserted in consequence. But the noise nevertheless attracted the attention of a policeman who, with quick resolution, gave the signal to his colleagues on the same beat and and immediately counter-signals were given. The position became critical. Wow. This is is a philosopher. (laughs) That's that's Marx. I wonder, that's a small step from the opiate of the masses, (laughs) isn't it?
0: Look, it's, again, you know, even turning to the next person, you know, Winston Churchill. At the age of 25, he was uh, a correspondent uh, reporting on the Boer War for the Morning Post in 1899. On this trip, at the age of 25, he took 36 bottles of wine, 18 bottles of aged scotch, 6 bottles of Vintage brandy. Now, I don't care how long he was going for, that's a fair bit in a suitcase or two. And we know in 1936, Churchill reportedly had a tab with his mine merchant, which would be equivalent to $75,000 today. There's also a few quotes from Churchill, which is interesting.
1: When I was younger, I made it a rule to never take strong drink before lunch. It's now my rule never to do so before breakfast his
0: lunches and dinners was always accompanied by brandy or champagne or both he would often have a glass of whiskey with him and you could see it in the photographs and his private secretary reported that churchill started his day with whiskey mouthwash which is whis- whiskey mixed with
1: Water. I actually have interviewed a distiller working here in Adelaide, Ian Schmidt, who told me there is such a thing within Scottish culture as breakfast whisky. Right. Okay. So it's a more a fruity, floral whisky, a lighter style, <laughs> suitable for breakfast.
0: Yeah. Well. Well. Roosevelt was uh, must have enjoyed that probably too. Um, he would. He, uh, Churchill visited the the White House uh, with the uh, Roosevelt uh, as the the uh, president. And the administration would call his visit Winston hours, and they would go on heavy drinking binges. And effectively, after a Winston Churchill visit, Roosevelt needed three days with uh, 10 hours sleep per day just to recover from this bout. (laughs) So, again, that's interesting. This wasn't seen as a problem. This is just reported, and we know this from, from sources. This isn't from Churchill, and this isn't from tabloids. This is just how it was. We even have Ernest Hemingway, who's, who he wrote to a Russian translator.
1: Don't you drink? I notice you speak slightingly of the bottle. I've drunk since I was 15, and few things have given me more pleasure. When you work hard all day with your head and know you must work again the next day... What else can change your ideas and make them run on a different plane like whiskey? When you are cold and wet, what else can warm you? Before an attack, who can say anything that gives you the momentary well-being that rum does? I would as soon not eat at night as not to have red wine and water. The only time it isn't good for you is when you write or when you fight. You have to do that cold but it always helps my shooting. Modern life, too, is often a mechanical oppression, and liquor is the only mechanical relief. Let me know if my books make any money, and we'll come to Moscow, and we will find somebody that drinks and drink my royalties up to end the mechanical oppression.
0: We have Vincent van Gogh, who, his painting, he was a drinker, he would drink something called abstinence, Oh, yes. Which
1: was called the Green Fairy? Yes, absinthe, uh, yes. Yeah, okay. Right. So, you know, it was, it was an exit. I've tried some of it. Oh, <laughs> is mm. it nice? It, it's nice, although the, the version we get these days doesn't have a particular ingredient in it which uh, can actually do uh, crazy things yeah. with your <laughs> mind. Well, that
0: was because it caused him to have delirium and hallucinations, which apparently evident in his paintings. Um, we have King Henry VIII, whose daily diet consisted of one gallon of ale, which is you know 3.8 liters, uh, and a bottle of wine per day. Now that's not reported about. That's when you find out how much he was drinking, drinking as a you know calorie total. So we even have the great Mongolian Khan uh, Ogadai, who was the grandson of Genghis Khan. They they had a huge known alcohol problem like you can actually read about people having what seems to be strokes or something that almost seems to be related to alcohol but even Ogadai was approached by his family saying your drinking's too much and to cut it down and he did end up cutting it down by saying I'll have one drink a day but then got a huge cup to compensate for it and then he ended up dying as the the Mongol hordes were about to uh, go into Europe and invade, Ogadai dies, and that invasion never happens. It changed the course of history. He's drinking and alcoholism, and he died as a result of it. When we look at it, these are just some of the people that come up, but considering the prevalence of drinking, you would think there would be thousands more of people that would report. When we find out that it's not until 1956 that the American Medical Association starts to classify alcoholism and alcohol abuse disorder as a diagnosis, you begin to realise that this wasn't seen as a problem beforehand. It, drunkenness was an, it was an issue, but it was more of a nuisance.
1: So almost taken for granted, almost like wallpaper or just another thread in the fabric of society.
0: So it wasn't really noteworthy. It... Again, there had to be kings and rulers who would drink themselves silly, but no one really took notice of it. And you, so you have to go finding the, through history to see you know, how it is. So again, you know, this, we're starting to recognize more about addictive behavior uh, and risky behavior, uh, but sometimes you actually have to find out from secondary sources as to what they mean by that, and you, know, you don't always know.
1: let's come back in a moment and look at how we started measuring uh, and getting uh, analysis of alcohol in humanity.
2: My friends, I had not intended to discuss this controversial subject at this particular time. However, I want you to know that I do not shun controversy. On the contrary, I will take my stand on any issue at any time, regardless of how fraught with controversy it might be. You have asked me how I feel about whiskey, all right? Here is how I feel about whiskey. If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery, and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey you mean the oil of conversation, (laughs) the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes. If you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget, if only for a little while, life's great tragedies and heartaches and sorrows, if you mean that drink, the sale of which pours into our treasuries untold millions of dollars, which are used to provide tender care for our crippled little children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitiful and aged and infirm, to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. (laughs) This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise.
1: So far with alcohol in both the previous segments, hypocrisy and alcohol have been used in the same sentence. And that's going to continue in this segment because if anything brings those together, it's the era of prohibition, Travis. It it is. This...
0: Uh, Particularly U.S. uh, is is the most famous example And we can trace back its roots into the 1820s and 1830s Where uh, religious revivalism uh, was increasing in in populism at the time Uh, They started to ban uh, spirits and alcohol in different states Early 1900s we find the rise of anti-saloon league Combined with evangelical
1: churchgoers (laughs) Protestantism There we go Travis, yes
0: Uh, And so this is starting to become a bit of a movement When 1917 hits and the US enters the war We have President Woodrow Wilson issuing a wartime prohibition to keep grain for food production Congress then puts in a 13th Amendment banning the manufacture transportation of sale of intoxicating liquors. And by 1919, Congress institutes the National Prohibition Act and goes into effect in 1920. So this is sort of an opportunistic way that prohibition came in. Even during that time, though, drunkenness and drunk driving was still an issue. Uh, eventually it was repealed in 1933. But again, alcohol... Even if you could find someone who was drunk, it was hard to prosecute them and to prove because there was no test. You would know that they were drunk, but you couldn't prove or have a a measure. Uh, Some of the states started, you know, enacting prohibition. So in 1906 uh, was uh, New Jersey and New York, it was 1910. But in 1927, we get the first test that arrives. Enter Dr. Uh, Emil Bogan's breath test. What he did was he found that if he filled a large football bladder with sulfuric acid and potassium uh, dichromate, if a person breathed into the bladder and that had alcohol, the yellow gas would change to a blue-green. So then he could compare that with known concentrations of alcohol mixture and then you can test how much is in there blood or in fur. In 1938, we've got Professor Harja from Indiana who developed what was called the Drunker meter. Uh, and this was the first practical roadside one, which is about the size of a shoebox. Uh, and you would they would breathe into it and they had a solution of uh, potassium permanganate. And again, the color would change. In 1941, there was Professor Forrester of Missouri br- developed the intoximeter, uh, and Professor Greenberg in, in, uh, produced the Alchemeter. But w- remember, this is the time when, if you're starting to measure this, you need to then have a law. And in, so in 1941, we find the first blood alcohol concentration law, and they had a blood alcohol concentration permitted to drive to 0.15. 0.15? 15 One
1: five.
0: A little bit more than ours, about three times more than ours. Exactly. We find in 1954, when Professor Robert Borkenstein developed the breathalyzer, uh, he also, in what we'd probably recognise as today, uh, or similar, you know, an earlier version, and then he also developed the coin-operated breathalyzer, which could be in establishments, and you would breathe into that, and it would come up as three different messages. Be a safe driver, so you're fine to go. Be a safe walker, so not safe, or you're a passenger, uh, depending at which level it would come up with. What we found then is when we started to test... We needed public health measures. Again, drunkenness was just a nuisance, but when you mix it with cars, it becomes a weapon. So what does 0.05 mean? 0.05 is the blood alcohol concentration, and what we measure it in is is in grams per deciliter, which is just grams per 100 mil. When I was working in the emergency department at St. Vincent's, we would take note, Friday nights and Saturday nights were when people would hit the booze pretty hard, and they would come in and, you know, you would just take a note and write down sort of, you know, what's the highest re- level that you would be reading. on the, the patient, uh, you know, we got 0.18 and, you know, 0.24. But I got a patient one time who was a businessman who fell down the stairs at uh, the train station. Ended up cutting his eye pretty badly, but he breathed zero point two eight. He was almost comatose. Like you know, I had to stitch up his above his eye, and he didn't even flinch when I put in the local anesthetic. You didn't need to, didn't need any local anesthetic uh, if you didn't want to. But wow. So what is the levels? Some of the acute effects, so the immediate effects of alcohol, uh, you'll get vision disturbances. So at zero point zero three percent blood alcohol. You'll have some vision disturbances of drowsiness and you'll even get some motor impairment uh, and people will have difficulty concentrating. Uh, and this is why 0.05, 0.05 is where we start to get the level because there is some, some impairment at that and we do know braking speeds and everything. And this is why it's the level for most countries. There are two notable exceptions and one's the US, which is 0.08, as well as Canada, uh, and again, that's a government policy decision. Uh, we know that at 0.08 there is more than just a little bit impairment and there is a, you're getting to start to get a bit more, and that's why the level that they've decided upon is that. Again, this goes into politics and it wasn't until 1960s and 1970s where they started to institute this as uh, as law at random breath testing because that was seen as an invasion of privacy. And at the same point in time, seatbelts weren't mandatory either. But it wasn't until a study showed a correlation between the time of death of uh, road traffic crashes and pub closing time that politicians said, okay, there is a link. What we've found is despite numerous increase in cars on the road, we have car accidents have reduced by two-thirds since 1970s.
1: All right, this is a slightly longer episode than normal, but it's a big topic, alcohol. So this last segment we might call last drinks. Uh, Travis, what? What? How are we going to finish? So
0: we're, we're just trying to look. Then, okay. What? What is the amount that we're having? What is the amount we're consuming? So, we know that the standard drink these days is about ten grams of alcohol is is a standard measure. So that's about a hundred ml of wine with alcohol content of you know twelve percent, a, a can of beer with an alcohol content of three point four percent, and about thirty mils of spirit, which about forty percent. So. That's one standard drink. So when you say you know you can have two standard drinks, that's the measure we're using. So uh, average 700ml uh, bottle of wine, white wine is you know, around seven standard drinks. Red wine, which is a little bit more concentration, is about nine drinks, a bit over. How does the body process the alcohol? Well, n- most of it's processed by the liver and an enzyme is called alcohol dehydrogenase. Uh, there are two other lesser ones, but we won't worry about them at the moment. The problem with alcohol is when it is metabolized, it produces uh, a toxic chemical called acetaldehyde. Uh, And again, our bodies have trouble processing this. We know even at moderate levels, you can get what we call lipid droplets in the liver, in the the cell. So we get what what a condition is called fatty liver disease. But it's not as simple uh, with regards to the metabolism of alcohol, because things like age and gender, food intake, all have a, a role in the metabolism and, and even the type of alcohol that you're taking. But the acute effects is uh, it's, it involves the brain as you know that's why a lot of people will drink. Um, but you can get inflammation of the stomach because of it. You can even get if you know we get a, a number of people present. If they have strong drinking bouts and they get you know violent vomiting, you can get bleeding in the area we call mallory weast has. These are areas that can happen just in the acute phase. When we look at chronic alcoholism, again you can get prolonged fatty liver disease, you know, alcoholic hepatitis, so this is, you know, inflammation of the liver. And prolonged, you can lead to what we call cirrhosis. And that's where you get the liver being fibrosed. Those nodules are the liver trying to regenerate, but you've got fibrous all around it and it becomes hard and it can't process things very well. The gastrointestinal system, you get, again, gastritis, and you can get what we call uh, esophageal varices, So, and that's because the liver gets hard and can't, blood part, can't pass through it, so the, the blood vessels back up and they back up to the esophagus, and so you can actually see these sort of tortuous vessels in there. Or we know they have a, a thiamine deficiency, which, you know, if prolonged can lead to disease, which I won't get into, but things called beriberi disease and and uh, encephalopathy. Uh, cardiovascular disease, you can get an enlarged heart. Um, you can have acute and chronic pancreatitis, and there's an increased risk of cancer for oral and esophagus and of oral and the esophagus and the liver. There are some benefits to mild and moderate uh, intakes of alcohol. There is some protective measures against heart disease, such as increases HDL, uh, and it can reduce platelet aggr- aggregation and fibrinogen, uh, but for the most part, extended use is, is not beneficial. The challenging thing from a, a medical perspective is there's not really many tests that help diagnose you know, chronic alcoholism, short of asking the patient their, their intake and working out if that's at risk we know that liver function tests the most sensitive is a, a GGT uh, that's just a liver enzyme uh, but again that could be raised in many issues there is one uh, test that's noteworthy it's called CDT carbohydrate deficient transferrin and this is used to detect prolonged alcohol intake over several weeks uh, but it's a measurement usually of someone who's taking between 50 to 80 grams per day for several weeks that accounts to over a bottle a day a standard six pack of beers or you know 240 mils of spirits per day again this is used mainly in an occupational setting uh, because if someone has to have a certain blood alcohol level at a certain time but if you do test and CDT the half-life is about one and a half to two weeks so, if someone abstains for about four weeks, the CDT will normalise. So, it's just something to keep in mind uh, for someone, particularly people who are in uh, things like you know transportation jobs. If they have to have a certain level of blood alcohol, uh, then CDT may be something that they need to have done for their for their occupational uh, uh, life. From a from a medical perspective, the most simple measure to find out if someone's drinking a lot of alcohol and i think most doctors have found it's just to ask ask the question of how much they're taking and most people uh, what i found is a useful strategy is if you ask uh if you think someone's at risk extending well and truly above the level say so how many slabs do you drink a day oh and then they say oh not a slab half a slab you know, instead of embarrassing, so like, you know, do you drink one or two drinks per day, you're going to, you know, but, you know, if they drink, if they say, oh, I drink two slabs per day, okay, well, that's a bit different, you offer a different question for them to ask, uh, or a different way to find out the answer that you want to do, Um, I find that that's actually quite useful, say, if they say three slabs, well, then you write down three slabs, but if they say, oh, less, then that's a helpful measure. So the most important thing is just asking, and there's a there's a number of risk assessments that are out there that you can mention, because this is a lot more prevalent than what we think.
1: Dr. Travis Brown, thank you very much. I want to say I need a drink after this episode, but then I'm in two minds about that, although I will continue drinking. This has been quite a uh, an illuminating episode. Just to Maintain vigilance about moderation. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.